We turn this morning to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, and we will be reading from verse 11 to verse 14. Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. In the previous verse, Paul made reference to the fact that Christ died for sins. Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And beginning in verse 11, he says this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And we pray this morning that the Lord would take that which on the surface might seem abstract and make it plain and real to us. Now, from the very outset, let me state for you the takeaway of this sermon. It's customary to do that at the end of the sermon to give the summarizing point or principle of the sermon, but I want to, right at the beginning, give you the central idea of this sermon, and it is this, that whereas we as saved, redeemed believers in the Lord Jesus Christ cannot legitimately and conscientiously continue in a life of sin, yet we are totally unable to overcome the tempting power and pull of sin by sheer determination or willpower. That is the controlling idea this morning. We have been saved and we are obliged not to continue in sin, and yet we cannot, by our own strength, by effort of will, live a life of holiness to God. And someone might throw up their hands in despair, protesting, seeing I'm ever confronted with such fierce, formidable temptations. How will I be able to arrest this dominating power of sin in my life? And our text this morning resolves this concern by calling attention to the believer's union with Christ and its consequent imperatives to holy, godly living. Arising from our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, the first imperative that's related to our sanctification to our living, holy, godly lives is found in verse 11. We read, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here Paul asserts once again the believer's severance from the dominion of sin and consequent new life in Christ and this by virtue of his union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, keep in mind, what is this whole matter of union with Christ? It sounds abstract, but here's the point. In summary, it is this, that from God's vantage point, that is the way God sees us, when we have placed faith and trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, God regards us as having been united with Christ in his death, in his burial and his resurrection. 
We are united with Christ, which means, among other things, we share his life. We share his life. We share his very life, his very nature. In keeping with Romans chapter 6, verse 9, Paul is saying here in verse 11 that since Christ has been raised from the dead, never to die again because his death settled once for all the problem of sin which held us in a condition of death, we having been united with him in his death and resurrection have not only died to sin but have been made alive to God. And the implication being that the power of sin has been broken through the resurrection of Christ, through his death on the cross in which he dealt with our sins, he rose triumphantly from the dead in consequence of that work which he accomplished on our behalf, the power of sin has been broken. That, among other things, means that as far as sin is concerned, the claim of sin on our lives is concerned, that power of sin has been broken. As we said last time, the expression dead to sin does not mean that the believer is deadened to sin, that is to say is insensitive to the pull of sin. Rather, what it means that once again, we repeat, it means this, that from God's vantage point in terms of how he sees us in Christ, sin no longer has a dominating hold, a dominating claim on our lives. But what does Paul mean when he says that we are alive to God? We are dead to sin, but what does he mean when he says we are alive to God? And simply put, our being alive to God means that we are now in a condition of responsiveness to him. Before we were saved, we were dead to him. We were insensitive to holiness. We had no interest in God. We had no concern for the things of God. But being alive means that we are now in a condition of responsiveness to him. We are now in a disposition of love for him, in a disposition of obedience to him. It means that by his regenerating, renewing, transforming power, we have come to the place where we love the things he loves and hate the things he hates. To be alive to God, in short, means that we not only possess the life of God, but we portray the character of God in a life of holiness. Now, Paul speaks of our being alive to God in Christ. And notice that expression, in Christ. And the expression in Christ relates to what is popularly referred to, and we have been using the term, union with Christ. To be in Christ is one and the same as speaking of our union with Christ. The expression occurs numerous times in Paul's letters. Even a casual reading of the New Testament will clearly indicate that there's no blessing you and I enjoy as Christians that comes to us outside of and apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 teaches, for example, that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Romans chapter 3 verse 24, our redemption by the free justifying grace of God is in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, God's free gift of eternal life is in Christ Jesus. 
Romans chapter 8 verse 1 tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 2, we have been set free in Christ from the law of sin and death. And who cannot but remember the classic statement in Romans chapter 8 verse 39, nothing in all the world will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. At the end of the day, what this means is that there's no saving relationship apart from or outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no way of coming to know God apart from Christ, John chapter 17 and verse 3. There's no salvation outside of him, Acts chapter 4 verse 12, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So the ultimate question is this, what does Paul mean then in verse 11 when he says this, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now to begin with, in exhorting us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, Paul is not saying, he's not saying that we are to imagine that such is the case. He is not calling us to pretend that that is true. No, he's not calling us to engage in fanciful, positive thinking, to believe in that which has no basis in reality, to operate on the assumption of a hypothesis. Here's the truth. We cannot consider or imagine anything into reality. You know, today, for example, we have women who want to consider or regard themselves as men and that will even go so far as conjuring up all kinds of weird, bizarre genders trying to bring these things into reality. But here's the point. To do that is to be engaged in an exercise of futility because here's the point. The only person in all the world who can imagine anything, who can consider anything into reality, into being, is the living God Almighty himself. But here's the point. When scripture tells us that we are to consider ourselves dead, dead to sin and alive to God, in Christ Jesus, we can do that. Why? Because the command is rooted in reality. It is rooted in facts. It is rooted in reality. And we can do so because of what God accomplished in the redemptive work of Christ. That's the reality. The reality concerns what God has done in the redemptive work of Christ. And what has he done in the redemptive work of Christ? Among other things, he has accomplished our union with Christ, as a result of which he has delivered us, the word of God says, from the dominating, tyrannizing, enslaving power of sin. And so to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ means this, it means that by faith, we regard what God says about us to be actually so. It means we believe on it. We count on it as a fact and not as a mere metaphor or mystical fantasy. 
Paul is not calling us. The word of God, beloved, is not calling us here to some kind of make-believe. He's not calling us to assume anything. He's saying here that when Christ died on the cross and when he rose again from the dead, something real happened to you and me who have placed faith and trust in him. And that reality concerns the fact that we died with him, we rose with him, and in consequence of that truth, we are to regard ourselves then as having died to sin and as being alive unto God in Christ Jesus. Interestingly, the Greek word Paul uses for consider or reckon, as some versions put it, was an accounting term. And those who are in the business of accounting know full well that whatever data is recorded in the book, in the ledger, has to correspond with facts. That is, assuming the business is running properly and healthy. That's why you see auditors are called in to check the books, to ensure that what is in the books is factual and not, as we would say, fudged. A business that's being properly run counts. Here's the point. A business that is proper, being properly run counts on and relies on actual funds that are available, not on figures that are made up. So Paul uses this word, this accounting term, and effectively what Paul is saying then, to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to count on the fact of what God has done in Christ. That event in which we are implicated, in consequence of which, we have been set free from the dominating, tyrannizing, enslaving power of sin. And not only are we to count on that fact, not only are we to reckon it as a fact, but we are to live in conformity to that reality, is what Paul is saying. So again, note verses 6 through 11, in which Paul links the fact, here is the key word, he links the fact of our union with Christ and consequent death to sin with his appeal to consider or reckon ourselves as such, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Note the flow of his argument, verses 6 through 11. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, so you also... You see the connection? So you also must reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, for us to further appreciate what Paul is saying here, you see that particle so? That word so is suggestive of a conclusion being drawn. In which case, Paul's exhortation to his readers, to you and me, is that we are to consider ourselves dead to sin in consequence of all that he said from verse 1 up to verse 10. Or the word so may be suggestive of a comparison. 
In which case, Paul would be saying, in this way, or like this, according to this pattern. That is to say, according to the pattern, along the lines of verses 6 through 10, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Now, something for us to notice here in this command that Paul gives for us to reckon ourselves dead, and the verb is in the present continuous tense, which suggests this, that there is to be a mindset, a continual, recurrent mindset in which we are ever regarding ourselves as such. Keep on regarding yourselves to be dead in sin. In other words, let that be your abiding, never-ending mindset is what Paul is saying. And with this, beloved, we come to see the key to our sanctification. In this, we come to see God's prescription for our victory over sin. As we said at the very outset, our being holy, our living holy lives, living holy godly lives, will not come about by our mustering up sheer willpower. It will not come about by our struggling and fighting with all our might. The key to our victory over sin lies where? It lies in the exercise of faith. Faith whereby we consider, reckon, regard ourselves to be what God says we actually are. Once again, what is that? Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. This is essentially... Listen, this is essentially a mindset, a mental exercise, and not a matter of how we feel. It is all a matter of faith. It goes back to what we were saying in a previous study, you see, and, and I'm going to repeat it at this point. Biblical Christianity, listen carefully. I know you know this, but it bears repeating. Biblical Christianity is essentially a mental thing. It, you see, people turn things upside down today. They make Christianity a matter of feelings. Many expressions of Christianity in our times is what? Feelings-oriented. In other words, if I feel good, it means that God is near, I have spiritual power. The Word of God suggests, my friends, that the way to spiritual victory lies not in how we feel. It not, lies not in what we think. It is all dependent of, on our faith in what the Word of God declares. As such, note verses 8, 9, and 11. Let me show you this principle in verses 8, 9, and 11. Notice in verses 8, 9, and 11, the interrelationship between, look at these three words, believe know and reckon. Believe, know, and consider. That's what God is asking us to do in order to attain the spiritual victory, in order to overcome the pull of and temptation of sin. We are to know what God says. We are to believe it or reckon on it, and we must know it. We must believe it. We must reckon on it. It is our counting on the truth of what God declares us to be in Christ that must inform our response to temptation. Let me say that again. It is our reckoning, considering, counting on the truth of what God says concerning who we are in relation to Christ and in relation to sin 
that must inform our response to temptation. Again, not how we feel. It is this counting on the truth of what God declares concerning us, this reckoning on the fact of what God says concerning our condition in Christ, our severance from the old life of sin, that will provide us the power, the stimulus, the incentive to resist all solicitations to evil, to temptation, to sin. In practical terms, it means then that when confronted with sin, we should remind ourselves of who we are in relation to God and in relation to our new life in Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, this is what we should consider. We should consider the fact that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Once again, I caution you as you listen to this sermon, it seems abstract, it seems impractical, but here's the point. This is a faith venture. Regardless of whether it makes sense to us, regardless of whether we feel it, we are to act on the reality of this truth. And the Word of God is saying that when we arm ourselves with this kind of thinking, when we let this pervade our thoughts, this is what will provide us the power to say no to temptation, to overcome the pull and the allure of temptation. This runs naturally into the second imperative that Paul issues related to our sanctification, which is found in verse 12. Notice the logical connection between verse 11 and verse 12. We have at our disposal the truth of God's word that says we are dead to sin and we are alive to God in Christ. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do you see the connection? There's a saying, you know, we are what we think. And oftentimes that which fills our minds, let's put it in practical terms, and sorry for the digression if, I, if you think I don't have to. If you keep telling a child, for example, you're worthless, you're worthless, you're worthless, what happens? That child will begin to what? Act like it. You tell someone who is struggling, who is doubtful, listen, you are as God sees you. You have potential for this, that, and the other. And you drive that home and you continue. What happens? The person's behavior and even their attitude has a way of changing. This is not pop psychology. I guarantee you. How do we know that? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Here's what he says. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. It is what we think, and in this case, our thinking on the Word of God that provides the stimulus, the power, the motivation to overcome, to say no to the pull and the allure of sin. The Word of God says, in consequence of the truth of verse 11, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Now, watch this. It's important to note what this verse did not say. Paul did not say, let not sin, therefore be in your mortal body. Do you notice that? It's a big difference. Paul did not say, let not sin, 
be in your mortal body. He says, don't let it rain. In other words, the command given to us here is not to eradicate sin from our mortal bodies. We are not commanded here to be sinless. Rather, we are commanded to not let sin master us. Not to let it be the dominating power in our lives. Why is this important for us to know? Why is it necessary for us to note this distinction? Very, very important. Because you see, there is a misguided, erroneous, and I would even say heretical teaching in some circles today. That teaching which posits what is known as entire sanctification. The notion that we can become sinlessly perfect in this life. You'll hear people say, listen, it's possible for us to attain to sinless perfection. Let me tell you why that is not possible. It is not possible because the reality is, as suggested in the word of God, that until our Lord Jesus returns, indwelling sin will always be a reality for the believer. The fact is, though saved by the grace of God and delivered from the penalty and power of sin, the believer, note this, is not yet saved from the presence and principle of sin. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, right? We, there's therefore no, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Presently, we are being saved from the power of sin. But guess what? Every morning we wake up, and the old enemy is still in us. The old sinful nature is in us. That is why Paul could declare in Romans chapter 7 verse 18, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says this in Romans 7 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in my flesh. May I say this to you? That is why, and I say this sometimes to people, I say if, you were to co- if any person in this church were to come to me and say, you know, I did this or I did that. And by the way, you should really confess your sins to God. You don't have to come to me. <laughs> but let's say for argument's sake, somebody comes and they say, you know, I did this. I'm not going to be shocked because here's the truth. The reality of indwelling sin is of such that though saved, though redeemed, though the believer in Christ, though the believer has been saved from the penalty of sin and is being saved from the power of sin, the reality is that sin can overtake any one of us, even in the most grievous manner. Paul says in Romans 7, 18, in fact, he says later on, oh, wretched man that I am. He's not speaking as an unsaved man. He's speaking as a redeemed believer in Christ, grappling with the reality of sin. And he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That is why he could speak in Romans chapter 7, verse 20. Here's what he says in Romans 7, verse 20. Sin that dwells in me. That is why I could say in Romans chapter 7, verse 23, sin that dwells in my members. What does he mean by sin in my members? Sin in my various body parts. But even in the face of our proclivity to sin, of our proneness to sin, the word of God asserts that in consequence of what God has done and declared with respect to our condition, namely the fact that we are in Christ, the fact that the the dominating power of sin has been broken with respect to our lives, 
We are to prevent sin from gaining a foothold in our lives. We are not called, once again, we are not called to eradicate sin. We are called to prevent it from reigning in our lives. Paul is saying here that we are to deny its ascendancy to the throne in our hearts and lies. We are to say no to its tempting, alluring suggestions. We are not to give leeway in our lives such that it makes us subservient to its passions. And what we get up then is that this command, this command then implies faith on the one hand and responsibility on our part on the other hand. It means that at the end of the day, watch this, it means that at the end of the day, whenever we sin, whenever you and I sin, or whenever we are mastered and overpowered by sin, we can't excuse ourselves by saying something like this. You know, the devil made me do it. We cannot say, man, the temptation was so strong, you see, I had to just give. I couldn't help it. I just had to give in. What does the Word of God say? The Word of God says you must reckon, we must reckon ourselves dead to sin because we, are, we actually are Dead to sin alive to God through Christ Jesus. In consequence of that, let, don't let sin. Do not let it master. Do not let it reign in your life. Do not give it a foothold. Say no to it. And we can do that, beloved. Why? Because of the power of the resurrected Christ and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, in expressed negative terms, the third imperative, we come to the third imperative of sanctification this morning. And it's found in verse 13, and it is this. He says this, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. The term members, as we said, refers to the various parts of our physical bodies. And of course, it would extend to our powers or to our mental faculties. The Greek verb translated present means this. It means to make available or accessible. It means to put at someone's disposal. Paul is saying here this, do not put... Your members, the members of your bodies, your eyes, your hands, your feet, and so on. Don't put them at the disposal of sin, in the service of sin. Do not make the various parts of your bodies accessible to sin. That is in practical terms. Sin resides in our members, but in practical terms, we must not let it reign in our lives. Do not put them, that is the members of our bodies, at the disposal of sin where they can be used as implements for unrighteousness is what Paul is saying. Prior to union with Christ, the believer's body, according to Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, was characterized how? As the body of sin. And having died to sin, the believer is now commanded not to go on presenting the members to sin is to not keep doing so. We have in the B part of verse 13, the fourth imperative of sanctification. There we are told, but present yourselves. Here's the positive aspect. On the one hand, the negative aspect, don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. But here's the positive part, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Present yourselves to God. Present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. That expression to God occurs as many as four times in verses 11 through 23. Once in verse 11, which speaks of the believer being alive to God, twice here in verse 13, and once in verse 22, which characterizes believers as slaves to God. And the expression to God speaks of devotion. It speaks of dedication 
and signals the way in which our new life in Christ is to be lived. That is, with complete, total surrender of our beings, the entirety of our persons, the entirety of our beings, soul, spirit, and body, to God. In other words, all that we have, all that we are, is to be presented, is to be dedicated, is to be surrendered to God as instruments of righteousness. Now, to get to the heart of what Paul is saying here when he speaks of our bodies as instruments to present to God, bear this in mind that inherent in the word instrument is the notion of dependence on the activity of an agent. What are we talking about? Take, for example, the piano. That piano is an instrument, but it is useless, it is ineffective unless a pianist gets around it and begins to what? Strum away at it. Along this line, one commentator says this quote, and I find this very helpful. He says this, The admonition, yield yourselves unto God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, shows that the power is of God and not of man. And then he says this, for the instrument is powerless apart from the master's control. In other words, what he's saying this, just as that instrument is dependent on the activity of an agent, similarly we, as, we are to see ourselves as instruments in the hands of God and we are to present our members, the parts of our bodies, as instruments to God in the service of righteousness. The key to our sanctification then is to avail our bodily members to God as instruments to be used in the service of righteousness. This is expressed in various ways. In scripture in Romans 8 verse 13 it is characterized as putting to death the deeds of the body by the spirit. In Galatians 5.16 it is described as walking in the spirit such that we will not fulfill the loss of the flesh. You see there, in both instances, we have dependence on God, dependence on the spirit of God. So in closing, in practical terms, what does this presentation of ourselves to God mean? What does it look like? Take the matter of our eyes. The eyes would be one such member of the body, Right? Outside the will of God, the eyes, for example, may be given to sexual lusts. The Apostle Peter speaks in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, of those who have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. 1 John 2, 15 and 16 speaks of one's loving the world that's characterized by the desires of the flesh and the desires of the mind. And so here's the point. One of the ways we present our members to God a specific reference to our eyes is by ever having before our eyes the fear of God. The fear of God. Remember Paul, what Paul had said about the unsaved man back in Romans chapter 3, verse 8, in the unsaved person. They, there's no fear of God before their eyes. That's why there's ungodliness. When we present our eyes to God, what we want to ensure, what will happen is this, that the fear of God will be kept ever before us. We present our eyes to God by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, we present ourselves to God, our eyes to God, by gazing at his glory. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, but we all with open face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory. 
We gaze at his glory contemplating all the resources of grace that are to be found in him. Secondly, the presentation of ourselves to God involves surrendering to him. We should surrender to him our minds. What this means is that we should feed our minds with that which is wholesome, with that which will enable us to live righteously and godly. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 exhorts us, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any virtue, if there is any praise, think on these things. The mind is a very, very important weapon in our spiritual warfare. Why is the mind so important? Listen, you put garbage in, and then what you will have is garbage out. We are what we think. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7 teaches that a man is what he thinks in his heart. That's why it's critical, you see, we give attention to what we look at, we, we are careful with respect to what we look at. If we spend our time, you see, watching certain movies, reading certain books, then before you know it, the mind is going to become contaminated, it's going to become corrupted, and it is going to spew out into our lives. What we feed our mind on determines the course of our lives. And so we present our minds to God by destroying, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to obey Christ. We do so as we let the word of God renew and transform our minds, Romans chapter 12 verse 2, as we set our minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth, Colossians chapter 3 and verse and we could go on and on this morning with how we present the various parts of our bodies to God. Well, in verse 14, Paul closes with the encouraging assurance that the believer in Christ can indeed enjoy spiritual victory. Paul is suggesting that all that he has said so far is not highfalutin, it is not mere pious thought. The believer can definitely have victory over sin. He writes in verse 14, why so? He says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that a Christian is not living under the economy of law with its demands, with its heavy onerous demands, which only issues in threats where that law is violated. What a way to live. The law doesn't provide the means. It doesn't provide the power to live for God. All that it does is show us. It shows us how sinful, how wretched we are. It shows us the ugliness of sin. It incites sins. It, in, it heightens the ugliness of sin. And the word of God tells us that when Christ died, what happened? He says the law no longer has a claim on us. That is with respect to demanding the death penalty. We're no longer in a situation where being under law, the law incites and provokes sin. Being under grace, by contrast, equips us with the empowering, with the enabling to produce fruits of righteousness so as to glorify God. When, imagine, when we sin, we don't have to be worrying, boy, Will God accept me? I've messed up so badly. God is going to get me now. No, we are sin abounded. Grace did much more abound. And that grace which saves us is the very grace that empowers us, that keeps us in the way of righteousness. Very beautiful passage this morning. The imperatives to sanctification. We're not obliged to sin as a result 
of our salvation in Christ. We have been freed from the dominating power of sin. We are to live that out in actuality by reckoning as a reality that when Christ died, we died with him. When he rose, we rose with him. And hence, the need for newness of life. Hence, we have the power to not let sin dominate our lives. We have the power whereby we don't have to present ourselves. We are under no obligation to present the members of our bodies as instruments. We don't present the members of our bodies to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. May God bless these truths to our hearts for his name's sake. Amen.